Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John 4, 7 through 5, 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. Preaching at 8 o'clock, it felt like I was preaching to a lot of people who were still recovering from Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know whether you feel like that as well. Perhaps you do. Not to cast any aspersions on the people at 8 o'clock, you understand. But We told a joke around our table uh, at uh, Thanksgiving. What's the key to a good Thanksgiving? Turkey. Isn't that terrible? You are here. You're awake. Well, it was uh, wonderful to see the men uh, do the quartet earlier. Wasn't that a great thing? And it was a good reminder that we do have this conference coming up that Steve also gave testimony to. It's coming up in January, and uh, D.A. Carson uh, will be uh, preaching. And I hope that Sunday, when I'm preaching, 
and there's a men's conference that I'm preaching to 90% women and children. And it really is a remarkable opportunity, and I would encourage you to sign up today, if you can, or at least in the next few days, if you are male, for the men's conference. Well, we're coming now to God's Word. Let me introduce it for us like this. In Southampton, on the south coast of England, around the beginning of the 11th century, King Canute is said to have performed a strange ritual. Uh, with his courtiers surrounding him, he went down to the sea coast and he sat on his royal throne and he commanded the waves and the tide to turn back. Of course, uh, nothing happened. And uh, historians uh, debate whether this actually took place or not. Uh, some people think it did. And if it did, uh, some historians think that Canute may have designed. Uh, this um, sort of visual illustration to make a point to his rather overly enthusiastic supporters who are claiming him in godlike terms. The point was that he was human. There were things that he could not do, and he could not turn the tide. Well, turning the tide back is a hard thing to do. But overcoming the world is even more difficult. It's one thing for John to say, you can overcome the world. Another thing to actually do it. It's one thing to command that the world be overcome. It's another thing to see the tide turn in our world today. You can dream of victory, but it's not as easy as actually achieving it in the harsh reality of everyday life. Not every story ends, they lived happily ever after, in the real world. How do we overcome the world in practice? Uh, there are many people out there who are offering different solutions to uh, this conundrum for the church today. There are personal uh, solutions people offer for personal battles. There are financial solutions that people offer to financial um, situations. And there are family solutions that people offer to family disputes. Uh, how do you get a family to get along Lots of different solutions. Some people say discipline is the solution. You can overcome all the world, all these difficult things, if you set the right goals and you just discipline yourself to achieve them. Smart goals, realistic goals. Other people say, no, the solution is community. The real thing you've got to do is surround yourself with like-minded people and people who hold to good spiritual values, nurturing people, people who inject energy rather than detract energy, that kind of community, you will find that uh, we will begin to overcome the world. Of course, there are people who say, uh, simply do not bother, just go with the flow, take life easy. And then there are people who say the solution is politics or education, or perhaps uh, most commonly, I find these days in Christian circles, the solution is to find people who can influence other people and influence them, and therefore you will change the world. The way to overcome the world is to influence people of influence, whether they uh, have cultural or political or financial influence, and by that means, we will turn the tide. We will be like King Canute, uh, yet successful. <laughs> One book that I read that was making this kind of argument had an unintentionally amusing moment in, uh, in the course of uh, the writing. After about 100 pages or more of saying that the way to overcome the world is to influence the movers and shakers of the world, the people of power and influence. It then changed tack a little bit to give a number of examples from history. 
that was meant to prove that point, that the way to overcome the world was to influence people who had influence. And it was unintentionally amusing when it began this new section with a stable, a carpenter, and his 12 nobodies that he called disciples. Oh, the Bible's pretty clear. If you actually want to overcome the world, if you want to see real progress in our government, and we need to see progress in our government, if you want to see real progress in defeating injustice across the globe, and we need to see progress in doing that, if you want to see real progress in controlling the world in us, sinful behavior, in a sort of pious and practical level in our daily lives, defeating habitual sin, what you really need is not more power, but more love. Or if it is power, it's the love kind of power. That seems to me to be John's point in our passage this morning. He concludes with saying, such people will overcome the world. But he begins by defining love for us. And he defines it as not to any and every kind of behavior that people call love. When you hear the word love, you, you probably just think something sentimental. John doesn't mean that, and he defines it very carefully, as we will see. And then he concludes by saying that this love evidences our faith, and it's that faith that overcomes the world. That's his point. These kind of people, which kind of people? Well, John is saying it's the born of God. So verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God. That's the big theme. And then chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And these born of God people, by faith in Jesus, love. And that is how they overcome the world. Perhaps it seems a little simplistic, like King Canute. Well, let's see how John makes his case. Look down with me uh, from verse 7 all the way to verse 21. And you'll see there that uh, John is defining love, and he defines love very simply as Christ-centered, Christ-centered. So verse 10, look at that verse. In this is love, so he's defining love. What is love? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So love, according to John, is not a feeling. That's not love. You don't define love by uh, how much you feel love, according to John. John is not a tingly feeling running up and down your spine. (laughs) That kind of thing can be present when there is love, but it doesn't have to be present when there's love, for it is not the definition of love. It's not just about passion. It's about something that happens. Some people say love is uh, just about things that we do. Love is, but John is not saying that either. It's not only about our love for God in the end. No, we only love because he first loved us, verse 90. So he doesn't find love by things that we do. He defines love by something that God has done. Love is defined by the events of Calvary. Love is who God is. He says that in a couple of places here famously, God is love. Well, what does that mean, John? What he tells us, it is expressed in God's self-giving sacrifice for our sins. The propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice. 
Now, that's the big point from verse 7 all the way to verse 21, and he makes it over and over again in a number of different ways and applies it in a number of different ways. Let me show you how he brings it down to earth. So he begins with, beloved, love one another. Well, why should we love one another? It's very easy to say, let's love each other in church, but how? Well, why? Because love is from God. So anyone who is born of God loves. He's defining love. It's not just an exhortation, this passage. You must love more. John isn't doing that primarily. Of course, we all must love more. But John is primarily defining love. Love is from God. Well, why is that, John? Because God is love. He's defining love. What does that mean, John? It means He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So John is going round and round again on this central point of defining love as Christ-centered. And so he says, if that's how God loved us, if that's what love is, verse 11, we also ought to love one another. What he does want us to love one another, once we've understood what love is, once we have the right definition in our minds and the power of God, having been born of God, then let us love one another like this. He's defining love. And it's so important. You see, how do you know when you're loved? How do you know when someone really loves you? Well, if this definition is correct, the way you know that you're really loved, well, ultimately, it's because someone forgives you. You see? Love is not just expensive gifts and charming conversation. Lots of people think that's what love is. Love is not just passion, feeling. If I feel it, I must be loved. No, love is not a buzz of excitement. Can be there, can not be there. Was the cross a buzz of excitement? Love is someone taking in their own person the pain of forgiving you for something you did to them when they have a right to seek recompense because of what you've done, but instead they swallow the debt and they forgive. That's love. That's what it means to be loved. Why? Because that is how John defines love. God is love. How do we know what that is? By Christ on the cross. If it's passion, it's that passion, that suffering of Christ for us. And when we see this, John says, actually, that's as close as we'll ever get to seeing God. When we see this in practical action, look at verse 12. Is there any verse in the Bible that will stun you? I think it is this one. John says, no one has ever seen God. It sounds like the kind of thing he says in his gospel. And in his gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God, but God the Father has made him known in God the Son. But here he makes a different connection. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the two ways that you can see God, if you say to yourself, I don't know whether I believe in God anymore because I cannot see Him. Two answers to that biblically. One, if you'd been born at the right time, you would have seen Him. (laughs) He walked the earth. If you'd been on the streets of Jerusalem at the right time, you would have seen Him. And John makes that point. I saw Him, John says. I touched Him, I heard Him, and I write this truth from the beginning that you may also believe. So there's that answer. Then there's this answer, which is? If you come to church and you see people forgive each other, you are seeing people in whom God abides. There's no other reason. There can be no other explanation. Only those who have experienced Calvary can love like Calvary. 
And so if you see Christians who are not getting along and will not forgive each other, it's because they do not realize how much they have been forgiven. And if you see our culture and our world together all around the globe fighting and arguing, it's because they haven't experienced the self-giving love of God at Calvary. That's the solution to the troubles of the world. That will overcome the world. That's when we see God. That's when you can see God this morning when afterwards in the narthex, someone goes up to someone and says, you know, doesn't matter, I forgive you. You see God. God abiding in that person. No other reason. Isn't it amazing? And so circling around this theme of Christ-centered love, he, he, he sort of dives into it again, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him. Those who love like this are born of God. They have his spirit. He's given us his spirit. He goes around this theme up until verse 17, and then verse 18, he tackles it from a different angle to bring it down to earth. There's no fear in love. Now, hold on, John. I thought we were meant to fear God, reverence God. Well, yes, of course we are, but this love casts out this fear, this perfect love expressed by God in Christ at the cross. That's perfect love. That's the definition of love. This perfect love casts out fear. What kind of fear does it cast out? Not the reverence of God. We should reverence God. The fear that it casts out is the fear, he says, which has to do with punishment. In other words, someone who's experienced Calvary no longer fears judgment. And that overcomes the world, John will carry on to say. Why? Because they're no longer fearing punishment. They're no longer locked in guilt. They can get out and get on with the work of God because they're free from this fear. Why? Because that is what love is. Christ taking our sins in His wrath-bearing sacrifice. Punishment, the fear of punishment, therefore, has gone. So John's making the same point round and round again, bring it down to earth, applying it. And then verse 19, we love because He first loved us and therefore we love like that by this definition. But John is defining love, isn't he, brothers and sisters? What is love? It's not a feeling. People say love is a feeling or it's about being passionate about something. That's how you know when someone loves you. John says no. If you're really emotional, you must be in love. John says no. Not this kind of love. People say love is a verb. Love is all about our love for God. It's about doing something. Well, yes, he does want us to love practically. He does want us to do things, not just to be sentimental. But that's not quite the definition of love. Love, according to John, is defined by God's love for us. That's love. Therefore, we know how to love, which is by giving ourselves to other people. When someone gives themselves to you and for you, you're being loved. That's how you know. That's, of course, that's a high calling. Perhaps uh, you think uh, John has taken rather too long to define love. Uh, you know, uh, lo- definitions are for philosophers, not for, uh, not for the Bible. Why is he taking so long to define love? Well, here's why. At some point, you will be faced with the question, 
of wondering whether God really is love. Perhaps you'll know he's all-powerful. But you won't know whether he is really love. There would have been an accident. Or a harsh word spoken maliciously by someone who claims to be speaking for God. Or ministry with which you have been involved just goes down the drain. And you wonder, how can God love you as he called you to that ministry that seems like it's failing? Or even something more terrible and traumatic. And I know that because I face such questions myself. And I also know it because as a pastor, I have talked to many people who have faced such questions. And if at that point, your definition of love is drawn solely from being excited, is drawn solely from sentimental songs, or drawn solely from personal achievement, this is how I know how much God loves me, because all the things I've done for God, if that is the definition, you will struggle to find an answer until you come back to what John says here. Where was God when that happened? I can tell you, God in Christ was on the cross. He was the propitiation for your sins. That's how you know God loves you. You say, well, that's all very well, but that happened a long time ago. And John comes along and says, okay, but here's how you know that God abides in us. Every time you come across another Christian forgiving someone, you are seeing that miracle of Calvary being enacted by the power of Jesus' Spirit. Such people born of God overcome the world. Well, how is that the case? Well, having defined love in verses 7 through to 21, he now explains why it is that these people born of God by faith in Jesus, evidenced by their Christ-centered love, overcome the world. This is the first uh, five uh, verses of chapter 5. It's the same theme, but he's now explaining how it is that they overcome the world. And when you look down here at these verses with me, as I trust you have your Bibles open still, and you can look down with me at these verses... Uh, you will see uh, that John seems to be saying some things that really seem quite ridiculous. I mean, the whole idea is a little King Canute-like. How on earth can you actually overcome the world? How can you turn the tide, whether it's in our own heart or in society at large or across the globe? It seems quite ridiculous. I mean, after all, John is saying, who is it that overcomes the world? No one except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, he's saying the sort of person who overcomes the world is a Christian. And that must have seemed as ridiculous to the pagan world today as it does to uh, perhaps our financial world. We're kind of comparing Donald Trump's world-influencing power and saying it's nothing compared to a college or workplace Bible study. That's what John's saying. He's saying the real action is in the person who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's where the real action takes place. Now, how can that be the case? Well, he explains uh, by uh, stating that the person who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that is a Christian, 
has been born of God. Now, this, you see, explains why. In other words, a Christian is not simply a religious person. A Christian is not simply someone belonging to a particular kind of denomination. No, a Christian is someone who is born of God. He's not someone who performs certain religious duties. John is not saying if you're very religious, you will overcome the world. Who is he who overcomes the world? The one who is born of God does, regenerated by God's Spirit. They are the world overcomers. Now, that is true. It begins to make sense, doesn't it? Because, after all, being born of God, well, that gives you some uh, overcoming the world properties, doesn't it? And Jesus Christ and His death on the cross and risen and ascended, as we said in our, um, our confession of faith earlier in the service, by faith in Him who has overcome the world, we're connected in some way, and so that begins to make sense. And it is critically important that it does begin to make sense for us here in Wheaton at College Church. See, Christians so often think of themselves as sort of marginalized from the great events of the day, rather insignificant kind of people. We tend to think the really important people are worldly people, not prayerful people. That the action takes place in a sports arena, not a church gathering or political meeting. Or when the heads of the world's government come together, of course, Christians can have great influence there, and that is all to the good. But actually, according to John, the people who overcome the world are those born of God. They are the earth shakers, the world overcomers. You could say it begins to look like God was right all along. A stable, a carpenter, a cross, twelve nobodies called disciples, a church on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Well, who are these people? Lots of people claim to be uh, devoted to God. They're born of God. Well, what does that mean, John? Well, he tells us everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. The logic there is clear. The born of God love the one who gave them birth and love others who are given birth by God too. That's what John is saying. And what does this love mean that evidences who these remarkable people are? It's uh, obeying God's commandments. Uh, by this verse 2, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. You say, well, that all sounds like a lot of hard work. Well, it may be difficult at times, but it's not burdensome, verse 3. Why? Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, verse 4. In other words, by faith in Jesus as the Son of God, we are born of God, His Spirit abides in us, and so we are able to overcome the world. And it's not burdensome in a negative, pharisaic, legalistic sense. We have God's Spirit. We are a whole new creation. God in His great plan from eternity past to eternity future is invested in Christ on the cross and His disciples and us who believe in Him, who are born of Him and have Jesus' Spirit. And so we're able to gradually become a bit more like Him, less like the world and more like the love of Jesus at Calvary. 
So he says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. By faith, we're born again, we're born of God. Our faith is evidenced by Christ-centered love. We love as we have been loved. With that self-giving love that we have experienced, we model, we enact. And so we overcome the world. We become gradually less like the world and more like Christ. And that's how to turn the tide. Let me explain it to you as we come to the end in in just a couple of ways like this. There's a very well-known uh, anecdote that is meant to be about G.K. Chesterton. Uh, historians disagree as to whether it actually took place or not, but it's such a good story, it's worth telling again. Uh, G.K. Chesterton is uh, meant to have uh, answered a series of uh, letters in the London Times about what's wrong with the world with a very simple letter to the editor. He is meant to have said, Dear sir, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. Now, the same is true today. People have many different answers to the problems of the world, depending on how they define that problem itself. It's the economy, stupid, they, they say. No, no, it's the environment. No, no, it's injustice. Not all those things may be involved one way or another, and I'm sure they are. But according to this, no change to the world can actually take place until the world is changed within me. It's the economy, stupid. It's the environment. It's injustice. It's me. Now, I wonder whether you can accept that this morning. I wonder whether you can accept that in order for us to see our world our society, our country, changed for the better, it must start with this new birth. Now, we can engage in all sorts of debates about the problems of the world, and I enjoy them as much as the next man or woman, and we can discuss all the solutions that we can think of until night falls, and those can be fun to do as well. John is saying it's all pointless until we are born of God. And until the born of God love like Christ loved us. See, here's the other side of the, of the conclusion. See, perhaps uh, like many Christians, uh, your difficulty is not so much that you think too much of yourself and think someone else is always to blame and it's never your fault, but you think too little of yourself as now someone who is born of God. If we're not prideful, we're despondent. And perhaps the two are more closely related failings than we care to admit. But listen to John. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And say, so what does that mean? It means if you are really and truly a Christian, you are no longer just what is wrong with the world. You have God's Spirit. You are born of God. And if you love as He loved us, as uh, John is encouraging us to do by this definition of love, 
If you love as Jesus has loved us, you are part of God's plan for overcoming the world at home, at work, at college, in your own heart. You're no longer just saying, what's wrong with the world? It's me. (laughs) No, as a Christian, you say, who will overcome the evil in the world? By God's love, because of Christ's victory, I am born of God. I will overcome the world in Jesus' name. Who is it that overcomes the world? This kind of person. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a remarkable passage. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps uh, there are some people here this morning who have uh, devoted much of their lives to turning the tide. And they look out and they wonder whether their efforts have been wasted. Pray, Father, that this morning you would give uh, such people an insight into the world overcoming love that uh, was expressed that is found in God you yourself and was expressed in Jesus at the cross would you open their eyes to the impact that Christians have at home at work in government And so give uh, such uh, people fresh enthusiasm for the work of Christ. Father, uh, perhaps uh, there are some people here who are very religious, but are not born of God. And when they hear me talk about the world overcoming power of the the new birth, they, they think it sounds like gobbledygook, nonsense. I pray, Father, that you would open their eyes so that they might put their faith in Jesus as the Son of God and so truly be born of God. Would you help them to realize that uh, ultimately their problems are to do with themselves? And so cry out to you, Lord Jesus, that your propitiatory sacrifice will be applied to them by your Spirit. In either case, Father, I pray that uh, your word here would bear much fruit. 
and the tide would turn. In the name of Jesus, amen.